Well, hey, I wish I had a picture. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we uh, had an opportunity to take our staff uh, uh, to a conference. That's the first time we've ever uh, done that. We've budgeted it for several years and um, get scared that we don't have the money because we're a new church, and so we chicken out and we don't do it. And this year, we decided to go ahead and do that. And so we went to uh, actually a church planting conference, about 5,000 church planters uh, that gathered. And it was just a, uh, a, great, a great experience for our staff uh, to be together and to learn and uh, to be challenged uh, from other from others, really, that are in the trenches uh, doing what we're doing uh, here at Northwest. And so uh, even though most of you don't necessarily know that we did that, I want to say thank you uh, for helping uh, to provide that for our staff so that we could uh, do that. One of the great things uh, that I've always liked to do in those moments is just to spend uh, some time together playing. Uh, because I really believe, and we do this with our staff each week, uh, we have time where we, uh, we're not sounding like we're out there playing wiffle ball over at the church office, although we could do that, all right? Sometimes I look out there, and right before we go to lunch, the guys are out there throwing frisbees, and you may come back and go, yeah, that's what church planting is all about right there, all right? Um, but I really believe teams that play together uh, survive long periods of time together. If you just work together, some of you know that to be true, even in the secular workplace. If you enjoy being with people, and if you spend time with people, um, you just seem to have longevity as a team, and that's what we want on our staff team uh, here at Northwest. So we, we value playing. When we work, we work hard, but when we play, I can assure you, we play very hard. And so while we were down in Orlando for this uh, church planting conference one day, I said, uh, we're just going to go to Disney one day, and uh, we're just going to play. And um, so we did, and we got there, and Diana right away noticed that they, I don't know how many of you have been to Disney recently, but at MGM, they have what they call the American Idol Experience. Have you seen that? And basically, all throughout the day, you can audition for four or five different times where you go up on a stage. Actually, an American Idol set uh, judges the whole thing, and um, you, you do your thing. And then at the end of the day, they have, uh, what is it, four or five people that have made it throughout the day, and they get to have a finale show. And one of them wins a golden ticket, actually, to go to the front of the line at any American Idol audition all across the country. So a pretty cool thing, right? So Diana, being the creative genius that she is, she said right away, David, you should do this. David Loftus, you should do this. I'm like, he's three times the age of the typical American Idol. I think that's going to happen. American, yes. Idol, no. That's not going to happen. David went and did it. And long story short, he made it all the way to the finale, singing the power of love. I wish you could have been there. His wife illegally videotaped it on a cell phone, and so we probably have that. And uh, ultimately, uh, he lost to a 15-year-old girl. But, she was a good singer, but I have to say, now I'm partial, right? Because he's on our team. But I have to say, I mean, he hit the ball out of the park. The one lady, the first judge said, I've been in this business for 25 years. I know a studio quality voice when I hear it. And you, sir, have that quality voice. And I said, yeah, yeah, he's on our team. That's our boy. Yeah. So if you get an opportunity, I'll put some uh, pictures up there on Facebook that you might be able to see them. Uh, If you get an opportunity to congratulate David, um, you know, we all have those things that uh, we just wish we would have done when we were younger. That's for David. Although back when he was that age, uh, they didn't do those things, right? So make sure that you congratulate him. Well, I used these words when I was a kid, and uh, I bet some of you did as well. In fact, I bet some of you probably still do 
It goes like this. Liar, liar. Hanging from a telephone wire. Now, there's some people that don't get that whole thing, right? But it's liar, liar, pants on fire, hanging from a telephone wire. Now, I did some research this week. You pay me to do this, all right? I did some research this week because I'm always wondering, where do these statements actually come from that we pick up and we use in our English vernacular? Where do they come from? Well, this is a phrase, actually, I read, that comes from a poem that was written in 1810, by William Blake, entitled The Liar. And somebody picked up that particular phrase, liar, liar, pants on fire. And even in 2012, as we walked out the door this morning and my daughter had uh, our study notes to stuff in the bulletin, and she said, really, Dad? Is that really the title of your sermon today? And I said, it is. And she went, liar, liar, pants on fire, hanging from a telephone wire. So even her, born in the year 2000, she still gets it 200 years later. You know, one of the most effective uh, means uh, used to distract us from our mission, our mission in life, I believe, is lies. Lies that become distractions when they take on the form of either opportunities or criticism slash gossip slash rumors or even fear itself. And just like God had given Nehemiah a mission, I want to remind you this morning, and I've done this several times throughout our series here in Nehemiah, that God has given you and I a mission. There's a reason why you're on this planet. There's a reason why you're here. And because of that mission, uh, there are many people and many things, I believe, that Satan uses to distract us as he attempts... uh, to, uh, uh, to, to, to thwart that mission, which we've been called here to do. Just like he's done with Nehemiah all the way through five chapters now and even into the sixth chapter. You'll remember the last time we were in our study together of Nehemiah, he was dealing with yet another round of actually civil unrest. You know, there were two forms of opposition. There was the opposition that came from without the walls and there was opposition that was inside the walls. I've said to you several times in our series that I believe sometimes the greatest opposition that we face does not come from without, it comes from within. We do ourselves more harm. The body of Christ does more damage to itself so often than outside forces. And that was certainly true for Nehemiah, and we saw that in chapter 5. Nehemiah, as he has done many times, confronts the situation, and he did in that particular civil unrest, And uh, they dealt with it, and the text says once they dealt with it, they jumped back on the wall and they kept building. They kept rebuilding those walls of Jerusalem. And a few days later, if you uh, read here in our text this morning, end of chapter 5, beginning of chapter 6, actually the majority of the reconstruction was uh, completed. The only thing that was left to do was to replace some doors that were in the gates. Now, it's been true in my life, and I think probably it's, it's true in yours as well, that it's just when you think everything is going really well, that that's when, at least in my life, Satan wages these battles, wages these wars. Have you ever woke up in the morning going, this is going to be a great day? And it looks like circumstantially your whole day is mapped out and it's going to be awesome. And then just all of a sudden something happens And you get to the end of the day, I had one of those this week, you get to the end of the day and you think to yourself, self, it would have been better this morning if you had just simply stayed there in that bed. 
It was so comfortable. It was so good. It would have been good just to lay there, never answer the telephone, never look at the internet, your email, nothing. It would have been, you ever have one of those times? It's just in those times when you think everything is going well, when you think everything is going fine, when everything looks good, that's the time I really believe that as Christ followers, we ought to have our guard up. In fact, Paul said this to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he doesn't fall. I love the way that the message paraphrases this. It says, don't be so naive and self-confident. You're not exempt. You could fall flat on your face as easily as anyone else. Forget about self-confidence. It's useless. Cultivate God confidence. And so Nehemiah's arch enemies got the message that all their efforts to stop the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, they had all failed. And they recognized that he really was just days away from completing this mission. And remember, they did not want that to be completed. A strong uh, Jerusalem was not in the cards for these pagan rulers that were surrounding them. And so they kicked into overdrive, and they're going to mount one last attack to try to stop those walls from being completed. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do this morning, uh, turn to Nehemiah chapter 6, and uh, we're going to make our way uh, through this chapter here this morning in these next uh, few minutes. Uh, The text says in verse 1, Now when it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, to Geshem the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, and that no breach remained in it, although at that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, then Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Shephirim in the plain of Ono. Now here's what you need to know about Ono. Ono was a posh resort uh, for the wealthy. If if you study a little bit and you go back and you look at historical record and you look at uh, archaeological records, you find that it was just that. It was really kind of an an oasis there in in a barren land. And it's just the place that we would expect to find our man Nehemiah, right? You say, no, we wouldn't expect to find him there. Remember that he had come from Susa, and Susa was that place that was uh, the retreat for kings. He had come from that place, he had left that place, believing that God had called him back to Jerusalem. Ono was about 25 miles uh, northwest of Jerusalem. Uh, It's pretty close to Israel's uh, present-day airport there, just east of Tel Aviv on the Mediterranean coast. Uh, It's very close to that site that Nehemiah was invited to go. Uh, And I I want you to think about it for for just a moment this morning. Uh, Nehemiah certainly enjoyed a few days off, don't you think? I mean, he had been working hard, he had been building this wall, he had been working with uh, ornery, frustrated Jewish brothers and sisters. He could have justified in his mind, I need just a, just a few days off. Who would fault him for a few uh, lazy days at the resort of Ono, right, with a few friends? Sanballat and Tobiah and his uh, other enemies proposed a meeting with Nehemiah, and it's if they're saying to him, hey, um, we've had our differences, But since you're obviously going to complete this mission anyway, then we just need to let bygones be bygones. Let's just become friends. Let's go hang out together at the resort. Let's have a a good time together. Let's get to know each other a little bit. Let's start to trust one another. I want to give you this. Watch out for the smiles of the enemy. You find that to be true in your life? Watch out for the smiles of the enemy. Satan is especially dangerous, I believe, when he appears to be your friend more than at any other time. You know yourself that if you were to see, actually, 
Satan come into the room dressed in a red suit with a pitchfork, not many of you would say, well, sure, sit down, have a drink, let's watch TV, right? You wouldn't do that. But he doesn't, he doesn't appear to us that way. He so often appears to us as a friend, and that's exactly what's happening here to Nehemiah. Distractions are oftentimes disguised as opportunities. Write that down. Distractions are often disguised as opportunities. You see, Nehemiah smelled a rat. He, he, he just he began to sense that things weren't as they appeared to be. He sensed that the request was not exactly as it appeared. The end of verse 2 says, but they were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? I love that answer that Nehemiah gave these men. I'm doing a great work and I cannot get away now. He knew what he was doing was a God thing and he was going to be relentless in his pursuit of what God had called him to do. He wouldn't be distracted. Besides, the end of verse 2 says, um, there's another issue here. They're planning to kill me. You see, it wasn't just going down to Ono for a few days with some new friends. He really began to understand that they were actually going to try to kill him. You know, it's so easy for us to get uh, distracted. It's so easy for us to take our focus of what God has called us to do and to turn our attention to things that appear actually to be more satisfying. I, I really believe that this is one of the many lies that Satan tells us and that so many of us are in the habit of believing But I want you to understand this morning that what God has called us to do, this mission that God has left us here on this planet to accomplish, this mission, as Nehemiah said of his mission, is a great work. And it ultimately provides real satisfaction when you're doing the work, when you're involved in the mission which God has called you to do. So many things appear to be good opportunities when we first see them, and they end up being huge distractions from our missions. I want to remind you of a few things this morning. Dads, uh, those of you that are here this morning and have especially little children, uh, don't get get distracted from the vision that God has given you. Hopefully he's given you. He certainly has given it to you in his word. Don't get distraction of the vision that God's given you for your family. When you're out in that yard and you're playing with that little toddler and you all of a sudden look down and that favorite iPhone ring of yours comes up or there's a text message or you know that an email is coming in, don't give in to the distraction. I want you to remember this. That may be an opportunity that lies there right at your fingertips, just a, a click of that button away. But I want you to remember this. I want you to remember that you are doing a great work. Your work matters. Your mission matters. Don't be distracted by things that appear to be good that ultimately are not nearly as good as they appear to be. They distract you from that thing that is most important. Dads don't do that. It's easy for us as as men also, and, and some women as well, for you to leave work late one more night of the week rather than to be at the dinner table with your family. You say, well, this is not a bad thing. This is a good thing. This will advance my career. And if it advances my career, then I make more money. I get a bigger bonus. We can go on a, on a nicer vacation. I want to remind you that the mission that ultimately God has given to you, it is a great work. Don't come down. Now, moms, lest you think you're going to get off free today, let me remind you also not to allow your family to be distracted from the vision which God has for it as well. I think some homemakers, some housewives, some CEOs of homes 
You have a tendency just to add just one more event into the calendar. One more little hobby for the kids. I mean, they need to underwater basket weave. I mean, after all, what a, what a skill set that is. And right over here in Morrisville, there's a guy that's a, a great underwater basket weaver. And if my kids could just learn to do that, I think their lives would be fulfilled. And so you sign them up for underwater basket weaving, looking at the family calendar, trying to figure out exactly where you're going to put that in. One more sport for the kids. I want to remind you that what God has called you to do in the home with those children is a great work. Don't be distracted. Don't come down. Those of you that are here this morning and you're single, I want you to remember, don't get distracted from the vision of a relationship that honors God. Don't settle for okay when great is just around the corner. Allow God to shape you into the man or to the woman that he wants you to be. And by doing this, remember that you were involved in a great work. It's worth it. You don't have time to be distracted by what appears to be a good opportunity when a great opportunity is just around the corner if you're not distracted. Don't come down. What you're doing is a great work. Don't get distracted. Don't compromise what you know to be truth. And then I would say to us in general as Christ followers, don't get distracted from the vision that you have as a Christ follower for the reason why you exist on this planet, for the reason why we exist here at Northwest to reach our community with the word of God, with the gospel. When there's a cost to living the life at work or at school or in the workplace or even in your neighborhood, I want to remind you, don't get distracted by good opportunities. You're doing a great work. Don't compromise. Don't get distracted. Don't come down from that great work. Your life is going to be full of opportunities that appear to be good, that if you're not careful, will become distractions to you accomplishing the mission that God has called you to do in your life. And so verse 4 says, they sent messages to me four times in this manner. And I answered them in the same way. I love that. Four times they sent these letters. Uh, maybe you didn't get our first invitation, and so we're sending you another one. We bought a five-pack, so here's, here's another one. You know, we would request, you know, your uh, presence at this little retreat that we've planned in Oh No. And each time, Nehemiah would say what? Oh No! Oh No! Just remember that one. That'll help you to remember what the resort name is, all right? Four times he said No. You know, that is the problem for many of us today, is the ability to simply and decisively say no. It really is easy. It really is. I heard somebody just this week that said, oh, that's not easy. Oh, no, it really is. It really is easy, isn't it? We don't want to do it, but it's really easy just to say, no, I'm not going to do that. But it really is that simple. Proverbs 1.10 says, if sinners entice you, what? You don't give in to them. You don't consent. You say no. You thought that came from Nancy Reagan. You were wrong. She stole it from Proverbs, all right? It's just say no. That's what you say. And that's what Nehemiah did four times. Are you sure? We'll give you the, we'll give you the VIP suite here at the resort. I mean, they got little chocolates on the pillow. They got the whole deal, Nehemiah. And each time the invitation came, no, 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 no. Four times he said no. One Bible teacher asked this question when commenting about this text. He said, have you learned to say no? I highly recommend it. The word should be said more often to television commercials, two-year-olds, and most importantly, temptation. Learn to say the word no. 
And so these men decided if you can't trick him, then why not discredit him? Do what we want or we're going to tell everybody about you. They're going to criticize him. Look at verse 5. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it's reported among the nations, and Gashmu says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you're rebuilding the wall and you're to be their king according to these reports. Verse 7, you have also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you. A king is in Judah. And now it will be reported to the king according to these reports. So come now, let us take counsel together. Obviously, after the fourth invitation to the resort in Ono, Sanballat decided to try a different tactic. He would go after Nehemiah's character. You know what's so unfortunate is that this isn't just a tactic of those outside of the walls, those outside of the faith. But many, even that claim to be Christ followers, will do the same thing. If we can't get our way, if we can't get a person to do what we want them to do, if we can't destroy the mission that we want to destroy, then what we do is we simply set out to destroy the credibility of that person, the character of that person. And so these men started a rumor that Nehemiah actually had not come back to rebuild the walls. What he really wanted to do was be the king of Judah. That was what he wanted to do. He was going uh, to mount a rebellion against King Artaxerxes, this man who had graciously allowed him to go, who had, he had given him the right to, to go through his forest and gather all of these timbers and everything. Uh, this would be the man that Nehemiah supposedly was going to overthrow. Notice that he also supposedly was going to appoint his own prophets to talk about him as king. And one other thing I want you to notice in this particular text, that this was an open letter. It wasn't sealed. In those days, letters were written on papyrus or they were written on, uh, on leather. And they were then rolled up and they were tied. And then they would take clay and they would, they would, they would seal uh, that particular letter. The reason for that is obvious, right? So that you would know if that clay seal had been broken, if it had been untied and opened up. It's very significant here that what Sanballat decided to do was to write the letter and not to seal it, to give it an open letter. Why do you think he did that? He wanted people to be able along the way, remember they didn't FedEx it, they didn't stick it in one of those envelopes, you know, the guy at the front door sees you seal it in the envelope to make sure, you know, you didn't do anything, he didn't see what was in there, he didn't take anything out. It wasn't that, they didn't have FedEx, right? This went through several, you know, picture the Pony Express, right? It went through several different people to actually get where it was going. And Sandballot wanted people to peek into that letter, right? He wanted them to peek in there and go, oh my goodness, did you hear? Did you hear? Nehemiah's not really there just to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He wants to be the king. He's trying, to, he's trying to mount a rebellion there. He's appointed his own prophets to prophesy him as the king. The threat was basically this. If you don't meet with us, we're going to tell King Artaxerxes. Kind of like when we were children, right? If you don't do this, I'm telling mom. Which in my house never got anywhere if you were just going to tell mom. I mean, who cares if you tell mom? I mean, what's she going to do, right? But if you said... If you don't do this, I'm going to tell dad. Now, that was a whole different story. If you're going to tell dad, then I'm going to do what you want me to do. That was basically the threat. Notice two times the phrase, according to these reports. According to these reports. What reports? Who said this? We use similar phrases when we spread gossip or start rumors. I've heard someone said, they say. Don't you ever go, you've heard? You've heard from who? Someone said, who said? They said, who are they? 
Distractions often involve unjust criticism, uh, gossip, uh, rumors. I believe one of the easiest ways to destroy friendships, neighborhoods, small groups, certainly churches, is gossip. It's the rumor mill. Someone has defined gossip as news you have to hurry and tell somebody else before you find out it isn't true. That's what gossip is. Let me give you some things, okay? This is just kind of a side note, but I put them in your notes there, all right? And I left little blanks there so that you don't get them unless you take the time to listen to me and take your pen and put the, you know, put the word in the blank, all right? I want you to get these things about gossip this morning. If you've not checked your motive, don't tell me. Now, when I say me, by the way, I'm talking about me specifically. Because it seems like so often I become the sounding board for gossip, and so I'm going to give you a few helpful things and how you deal with me, which, by the way, are also transferable on how you deal with one another in the body of Christ with brothers and sisters. If you've not checked your motive, don't tell me. If you're not sure that your motive is 100% pure, then don't tell me about it. Go back and check your motive. Make sure your motive is pure before you even open your mouth. And number two, some of you have heard me say this. If I'm not part of the problem, which normally I am, but if I'm not, if I'm not part of the problem or part of the solution, don't tell me. Does that make sense to you? If I'm not part of the problem, meaning I didn't do anything. I, by the way, I love those moments. I really do. There's something refreshing about a guy that has a personality and a temperament like me when somebody comes to me and they're not mad at me. I'm just, I'm just glad you're not mad at me. And part of my flesh wants to go, as long as you're not mad at me, just tell me. Just tell me. Say whatever you got to say. I'm just glad you're not mad at me. All right? But here's the thing. If I'm not part of the problem or you don't think I can be part of the solution, then don't tell me. Don't share that with me. Because, number three, if you don't want to be held accountable to resolve the issue, don't tell me. Because here's what I will do and what I think we ought to do as brothers and sisters in Christ. We ought to hold those people accountable who come to us and tell us something. We ought to hold them accountable to resolve whatever it is that issue is that's leading to the criticism, the gossip, the rumor, whatever it is. And so I typically will say to somebody, when do you think you might be able to talk to that person? Oh, well, I, you know, you know sometimes it's why I thought you were going to talk to them. Well, you thought wrong, <laughs> you know. It's really funny because a lot of people that tell me something one time never come back to me again and tell me something, and I haven't figured that out exactly. But a lot of us don't want to be held accountable to follow up, do we? But if you simply say, hey, so uh, do you think in the next week or so you'll be able to talk to him? Do you think in the next week or so you'll be able to talk to her? Oh, well, I ain't really made a... You think you can make those plans? I'll get with you in a week, and if you haven't had the chance in a week, then I'll take the next week, and I'll make sure that they've been made aware of that. Now, here's what happens in those particular situations. The person either resolves that issue, or they don't, and then you have the opportunity to resolve that issue so that the criticism, the gossip, the rumor stops. Does that make sense to you? I think it's really a great principle. If you don't want to be held accountable to resolve the issue, then don't tell me. You ought to have the same things. If you don't want to be held accountable to resolve the issue, then don't tell me. Number four, if you want to pray about it, do it. Most times it's better for you only to talk to God, not me or others. See, sometimes the gossip, the rumors, those innuendos, they come in the form of a prayer request. After all, we are very spiritual people, are we not? I would like for you to pray with me about this. I'm not sure of all the details, but God knows. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. He knows your motive. He knows why you're sharing this with me. Oh, he knows a lot. 
If you want to pray about it, then pray about it. Most times it's best for you only to talk to God, not me or to others. I think those things will be helpful for you, by the way, as you deal with gossip, as you deal with rumors. Because I think that Satan loves to use nothing more. I think one of his favorite weapons in his arsenal is to pull out in a local church that gossip, the criticism, the rumor, and it runs rampant in a family, right? It can run rampant on Facebook. It can do a lot of things, and it destroys not only those that are the target of the gossip, the criticism, or the rumor, but I believe along the way it destroys all kinds of innocent people, beginning with the person that starts that. We want to be committed here at Northwest to have right relationships, and I think those simple principles will help us to do that. Once again, I really love Nehemiah's response. Uh, When you're reading scripture, do you ever think, uh, I wish that guy was still living? Anybody else have that when you're reading scripture? Sometimes you go, I really wish that guy was living, because I think if he was living, like I think we'd be best friends. I think we'd go to Lost Trace like once a week, just so I could hang out with him. I'm sure Nehemiah would like Lost Trace, so that's probably where we, would, where we would go. Maybe Chick-fil-A here and there, but mostly Mexican. I really think this guy would be my friend just when I, when I see how he responds to people. Now, let's read his response in verse 8. He says, Then I sent a message to him saying, Such things as you are saying have not been done, but you're inventing them in your own mind. He goes on to say, For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they'll become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Here's the summary. Not true. You're delusional. Now I need to get back to work. I like that. Sometimes we think the proper response, by the way, to the criticism or gossip, unjust criticism, gossip, rumor, is to go, I'm just going to ignore it. That's really spiritual. In fact, I've heard people say, oh, I'm just going to put my sword in this hand and my trowel in this hand and I'm going to jump back up on the wall. As if that's what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah didn't do that. Nehemiah responded. In fact, each and every time he responds. Even when they asked him to come down to Ono, what did he say? No, no, no. He didn't just go, I'm going to ignore you. Speak to the hand. He didn't do that, did he? No, no. He, He made sure that he answered it. Now, he didn't take the time to sit down and write 45 bullet points. You know, he didn't know that Martin Luther was coming and there'd be a 95 thesis that was nailed to the door. He didn't know that. He wasn't going to give you all those points. But he was going to make sure that they knew that is not true, that's not right. But I love his response. What you're saying, have, what you're saying the things you're saying have not been done. You're inventing them in your mind. They're not true. You're delusional. I'm going to get back to work. I really think that that kind of response is appropriate. To ignore it sometimes is to give credence to it. To talk too much, when you have to talk too much, have you found this to be true with your kids especially? When they have to say too much, you begin to go, you must be guilty of something. What are you covering up? When they give simple answers, you have a tendency to believe maybe that's all of it. But when they begin doing all this, defending, that's when we become questionable. Don't you wish you handled criticism and gossip that well when it comes your way? I do. The challenge for me sometimes is to ignore it. I don't ignore very well. I'm a seeker of justice, self-confessed. I'm a seeker of justice for myself, for you, for anybody. I don't even know. I just want, I just want everything to be right and fair. Right? Maybe you're one of those kind of people. But I wish that I was able just to simply say, that's not true. You're making up those things in your mind. I've got work to do. 
Maybe that's a good way to do it. Verse 10. When I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Methatabal, those were all pronounced correctly, by the way, just then, who was confined at home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you and they're coming to kill you at night. If they can't deceive him, if they can't discredit him, then they're going to attempt to scare him. Here's the thing. Distractions are many times effective when fear is involved. By the way, we read of this prophet only one time in the word of God, only one time in the book of Nehemiah, right here in this verse. We really don't know who he was or why he was confined to his home. Some have suggested that he was just simply a prophet for hire. I began to think of him, uh, as I studied this week, much like the Long Island medium that you uh, see on TLC, right? That lady that kind of sits there and people come to her and she tells them things. Weird stuff, all right? He proposed that Nehemiah go into the temple for refuge because they were after him. They were going to kill him. It was an intriguing plot, but was it true? Was this really a prophet of God? And by the way, why was this guy confined in his home? Why wasn't he out helping to build the wall? Good question, right? You remember we read about before that the priests were on the wall? Remember when we talked in the chapter where we talked about all the people that were building and all the people that were working and the priests were working and everybody was working? Why was this particular prophet confined at home going, hmm, why was he doing that? Here's the principle that I believe is at work here. It is wise for us to be cautious around so-called Christians who always have advice but never seem to be in the battle involved in anything of eternal value. Do you know who they are? Have you seen them? Those people that always have something to say, they have something to add, something that God gave to them that they want to share with the rest of us. But they're not involved in doing anything of eternal lasting value. This was a temptation for Nehemiah to do two things, real quickly. Number one, to break God's law to save his life, and by doing so, discredit himself. You see, the Mosaic law, if you were to go back to the book of Numbers, in particular, uh, chapter 18 and verse 7, you would see that it was unlawful for, um, uh, for people to enter into the holy and the most holy of places in the temple, other than those anointed servants of the Lord. In fact, in, in uh, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 26, you'll remember when King Uzziah began to think a little more of himself than he should. And remember, he went into the temple and he was going to have a good old time in there. And remember, he escaped actually pretty lightly. He was stricken with leprosy. Nehemiah, though, saw through this quote-unquote prophecy. And he knew that it could not be counsel that came from God because it violated the Mosaic law. There was no way that that could be true. You know, I talk to people on a regular basis who justify their behavior by simply saying things like this. I prayed about it. It's God's will. You talk to those people like that? Very frustrating. Very, very frustrating. Not too long ago, just a few weeks ago, I sat with someone who said that to me. I prayed about it. I know it's God's will. And I'm kind of looking at him going, you couldn't have. Because if you prayed to God and he told you that, then something's, something's not right, right? Something doesn't mesh here if he actually told you that. We're in the habit, by the way, I say we, I've done this, you've probably done this too, by justifying what I want to do, by simply stating that it's God's will, I've prayed about it. As if God's not cap- capable of coming down and saying, whoa, hey, uh, I did not say that. I think sometimes we misrepresent God. Here's two things I do know. God's will never involves contradicting his revealed will in Scripture. 
If you tell me that, uh, that something is God's will for your life that is in violation of what we read to be truth in Scripture, then I know it's not God's will, right? And that was true of Nehemiah. He knew that what he was being asked to do by this false prophet was contrary to the Mosaic law. And so he knew it couldn't be God's will. Number two, I know this about God's will. You will never truly know God's will unless you're walking with God. I I am doubly amazed at the people that I talk to that tell me, I believe this to be God's will for my life. And I say, well, if you believe that to be God's will for your life, then why are you living an immoral lifestyle? Good question. Because we know that to be true in God's word, right? We, we know it's, it, it's, it's, it's true that God does not want you to be immoral, right? God, God doesn't want you to have sex with somebody outside of marriage. We know that to be true. And so if you would do what you knew to be revealed truth in the word of God, and you would violate and you would ignore the written word of God, what gives credibility to you saying that you know the will of God when that is something that is somewhat abstract. We can't possibly know whether that is necessarily God's will or not God's will. A simple, simple couple of verses that many of you are familiar with, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he'll do what? He'll direct your path. Some translations say he'll make your way straight. It won't be going like this, and you're going to go, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do, where I'm supposed to go. He'll make your path straight. If you're acknowledging him in your life, if you're walking with him, you're never going to truly know God's will unless you're walking with God. The second uh, temptation for Nehemiah was to give in to the fear and look out for his own safety and well-being over the mission that God had called him to accomplish. I really believe that fear is... Uh, so often, one of the weapons that Satan uses so effectively so that we don't complete the mission that God has given to us. Nehemiah could have reasoned, well, what if it's true? What if they're actually going to kill me? I mean, what good would I be dead? I mean, if I'm dead, there's going to be nobody here to lead these people. And these people are messed up. I mean, for 141 years, they haven't been able to accomplish this task. And look what we've been able to do in just a few short weeks. I've got to protect myself. What if they were really going to kill him? I have those fears on a regular basis, don't you? Those fears that begin with what if. Anybody else or am I the only one? They begin with what if. They're things like this. I really want to quit this job. I know I need to quit this job. I know this job isn't good for me. It's not good for my family. I'm being asked to do things which I think violate my my ethical standards. But what if I can't find another one? As if God's will is dependent on you being able to see to the end of the rainbow. Fear. I know I need to end this relationship, but what if nobody else comes along? And so you continue in that relationship out of fear. I know I need to speak up and I need to say something, but we see this all the time, middle school, high school, but we're even seeing it in the adult workplace. But what if they laugh at me? What if they mock me? What if I become the outcast in the office if I say something? What if, what if, what if? When fear takes hold in our lives, we can become so focused on what could happen that we lose focus on what we should do. I want to challenge you not to give in to that distraction of fear. Don't allow fear of the unknown to cause you to miss out on what God wants to do in and through your life. There's so many applications uh, to that. 
2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7 says, God did not give us a spirit that makes us afraid, but a spirit of power and love and self-control. And so quickly, Nehemiah decides what to do. Verse 11 says, but I said, should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. He said no again. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him, but he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. They paid him to do it. He was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened and act accordingly and sin so that they might have an evil report in order that they could, could reproach me. And apparently Shemaiah was not the only prophet that was seeking to destroy Nehemiah. There were others that were uh, hired or who attempted to frighten him as well. Verse 17 says, Remember, O my God, Tobiah and Sanballat, according to these works of theirs, and also Nodiah the prophetess and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. I need to learn this lesson from Nehemiah, maybe you do too, that the best response to those things or those people that would try to distract us from our mission is to tell God to simply deal with them. I can't promise um, you this, but I can uh, promise this particular thing that he doesn't forget. He's fully capable of dealing with those that stand against the mission of a group of people or an individual when he's called us to do something, when he's called us to build something. And so at the close of the chapter here, verse 15 says, so the wall was completed on the 25th fifth month of Elul in 52 days. And when all of our enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence for they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. The builders finished it in 52 days. Elul is uh, late August, early September, and Israel's enemies saw what God had done, the rapid progress, how he had helped the workers, And I want to tell you this, nothing silences the critics faster than a vision that has been brought to completion. Nothing will silence them quicker. Verse 17, also in those days, many letters went out from nobles of Judah to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Hara, and his son Jehonan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Moreover, they were speaking about his good deeds in my presence and reported words to him. Then Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. Nehemiah mentions one last distracting ploy that the enemy instigated. And by doing so, he suggested that the problem didn't go away. It kept persisting. It kept going on and on and on and on. You remember a few weeks ago, I mentioned to you that Tobiah was probably Jewish. He was probably one of the people that was supposedly on the inside. He was one of those people that was supposed to be a a believer in Jehovah God. And yet, because uh, of the intermarrying and all of these complicated relationships that had happened, there were people that were loyal to him, and he was trying to discredit Nehemiah and trying to build himself up. And there were people inside that listened to him, and it was a continual thorn in the flesh for Nehemiah. You would would think that telling us that the walls were completed in 52 days, that that'd be a great way to conclude the story. That's what I would have done if I'd have been Nehemiah. Of course, I'm not writing his diary, but I would have said, uh, and we completed the wall in 52 days. Woo! And we had a big pep rally, and we brought out the Mountain Dew and the chips and salsa. It was awesome. But he doesn't do it. He said, we completed the wall in 52 days, but guess what? Man, the arrows still kept flying. They still kept coming at me. 
Why does he tell us about further attempts made to discourage and discredit he and, and the mission? I, because, I, I really believe because the attacks he knows will never end. If you choose not to ignore the mission that God has gave, given you to do, and you choose to keep on regardless of the distractions to your mission, to the vision that God has given you, then the attacks are going to continue to come until Jesus comes. That's the reality of Scripture. Ephesians 6 says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Here's the big idea as we close really simple. If your life is on mission, if you're a person here who lives with purpose, I don't mean the purpose of you getting a bigger house, you getting a nicer car, you getting a promotion at work. I'm talking you are a world-class Christian, meaning you buy into what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. If your life is on mission, I want to remind you of this. You're doing a great work. You're doing a great work. And you don't have time to come down. You're doing a great work. And one day, one day in eternity when it matters, you'll be thankful that you stayed on that wall, that you stayed true to the task that God's given you to do as a husband, as a father, as a mother, as a wife, as a student, as a single, as a worker in the workplace, as just a Christ follower, part of a mission of a local church. God has given us a great work to do. Don't come down. Stay up there and accomplish something awesome. And there'll be a day that comes in the end when I think you'll be glad that you did. Let's pray. God, I am so thankful for this man, Nehemiah. I love him because uh, he tends to be rough sometimes. He tends to be spontaneous as he pours out his heart before you. He's decisive. He says the things that need to be said, even if there'll be significant consequences. And God, I thank you that although this, these events happened so long ago, they are relevant to us today. God, I pray that you'd cause us to remember that we are involved in a great work. And there's going to be a day that comes when the end draws near. And God, we want to finish this race well. We want to do what you've called us to do until the day that you call us home. And I pray we'll be faithful to that task. And I pray it in Jesus' name.